This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by PayPal. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. I got a solo show this week as Michael's away, but a reminder to listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from you. You can tell us what you think by sending us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line of Money Reimagined. Today, we'll be talking a bit about blockchain and AI, crypto and AI, digital assets and AI, and how all of these things ultimately intersect. I'm joined today by Sean Wilkinson. He's the founder of Storage and of Protea. Storage is one of the biggest distributed storage platforms available today. And Protea is an AI company that uses decentralized processing on the back end. So decentralized processing, Sean, let's start there. Walk us through this entire model and how you're using a blockchain, if at all, or if not, what does decentralized mean to you? Sure, sure. So yeah, I guess it's worth going back a little bit to set a little context. So I've been in kind of the crypto web three space for 10 years now, started in 2012, just started a a little project out of my dorm room that was, I was downloading a bunch of Twitter data, I guess, I guess we call it X now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Store and analyze it. And uh, I was just adding up to too much data for me to store locally. And so I looked at all these cloud providers and try to find, you know, something that could store all this data. It was way too expensive. Um, Amazon and Google, Microsoft, same offerings that we have now, still too expensive. So I was mining uh, back then. I wish I uh, hadn't turned it off. Half Bitcoin a day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, thing. if I can rent out my CPU, why can't I rent out my hard drive space? And, you know, maybe a little distributed network, I can store all this data for cheaper. So I went down that rabbit hole and never came back, uh, came back out, found its storage and allowed people to rent out their distributed, uh, just rent out their extra hard drive space and then allow businesses and companies to store their data. So it started as a small little open source project uh, where one of the very first ERC-20 tokens raised $30 million in a token sale, you know, grew that from basically four guys and a dog, uh, <laughs> 60 plus people. And now it's the you know largest distributed cloud storage company in the world and really just solving a lot of problems in terms of privacy and security and costs for, for companies. Um, and so I got started playing around with, with AI as, you know, as ChatGPT <laughs> came out, <laughs> everyone's just having so much fun. It's funny, I, I've actually been playing around with a lot of that tech GPT-3 since 2020. But no one seemed to care about it until ChatGPT came out. And they found the kind of the same problems that people are having with traditional cloud. You know, you have these massive AI companies, right? And they're just giving all their money to AWS and Microsoft and NVIDIA. And it is really difficult for them. And all their data. Scale up. So played a page out of my playbook, just used uh, kind of the, the experience that, that I had building distributed storage and built out a distributed GPU platform for AI. And funny enough, it, it, it uses a bunch of former mining GPUs, but AI is oh, not right now and it's, it's taken off, but the infrastructure is really difficult for, for people to run. And so yeah. we at Protea, we, we kind of help with that. So you can see how yeah, the yeah. two meld together. 
Yeah, you make such a good point, though, about chat. GPT-3 wasn't around for years until chat GPT, but it was like the form factor that made it accessible to people because you were just, it's like a chat bot. You're just chatting, go to that, type some things in, things come back, haha, they're funny or not or whatever, right? And it's interesting because you can imagine if it were easier to get a private key back in the day, what that would have done for adoption of crypto. It was just so impossible to get your head around how to do it, you know? I remember back in the day where if you wanted to use Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, you had to go to the source code and compile it from scratch on your computer. <laughs> user. You can't help but wonder in, in an alternative, in, in somewhere in the multiverse, right? Like that problem was solved early on and it was just pretty, it was fun in a way that ChatGPT is fun, right? It was fun and, and easy and almost like just very familiar at the interface of engagement, what that might've looked like. And I do think a big reason People are always like, oh, adoption, adoption, this and that. And I'm like, well, the learning curve is really steep for a long time. And frankly, it's not necessarily like super awesome, you know, even now, right? I think we can kind of acknowledge better. But, you know, when you start with like, you have to have a, I don't know, PhD in computer science to figure it out at all. It's kind of like, okay, now here's where we are. Speaking of, okay, so you're a computer science at Morehouse. And when you graduated, was Bitcoin a thing? Was crypto a thing? Or, you know, give us a sense of like timing and how you came to these different kinds of things. I mean, so clearly you were starting with a very interesting use case focused on the monopoly, I would say, or the oligopoly of these. Well, I probably shouldn't say that, but <laughs> that probably has legal ramifications for those companies. But the idea that you really can't run a website, you can't really run a retail facing business unless you're using one of these cloud storage providers, or you couldn't for a long time. And that that is problematic. So we started with that observation twice. But I'm curious, technically speaking, kind of what was the thing everyone was buzzing about when you came out of school? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, oof, I graduated a little, a little bit ago, 20, 2014. I, I think people can kind of guess, you know, the 2014 crypto was still very kind of new. Yeah. And I think people were very idealistic about, you know, oh, these distributed systems will take over the world. But I think one of the things that people really gravitated towards is these kind of distributed systems. You know, it's hard to build, you know, let's say a decentralized Uber, right? Or a Lyft, yeah. right? Because there's so many people and physical touch points to that. But I think a lot of people get the idea of like, oh, you already have like a digital service, like storage or compute, right? It's a lot easier for you to imagine, oh, I have these excess resources. On my computer, I can sell them, I can rent it out. So it was a very exciting idea. And you see, you know, from that time period, a lot of projects like storage, Filecoin, other yeah. attempts at distributed storage or computer, all these other resources yeah. were excited about it. But back to what we were just saying before, I mean, the interfaces are very important. Again, I was playing around with GPT-3 in 2020, pretty much the same technology. Mm -hmm, right? But mm -hmm. until people put it in open AI, put in a chat format, nobody cared because that's super accessible. So until it was helping you with menu planning, no one was interested, right? Like, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> make me a grocery uh, list. <laughs> yeah, totally. Not a lot of, at this time, like 2014, a lot of early attempts, but like the interface, uh, you know, wasn't there, wasn't easy to use. You had to go compile things from scratch to be able to use it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a big difference between, you know, back then and now is everyone's still excited about these systems, but there's been some maturity in, in uh, making them easier to use. You, you can go to, you know, Coinbase <laughs> and buy and sell. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I came out of college. I graduated college a long time before you did, my friend. But <laughs> even at that time, like, I was running SETI at home, right? And then, and then I know like my younger sibling, you know, and my, some of my cousins, they were running Folding at home, you know, Vijay Pandey's thing. And so 
so this concept of using your extra compute, like for a service that wasn't monetized, you know, in those cases, right. But the idea that you could be useful, quote unquote, you know, in your use these productive assets that weren't being deployed for something productive that was oriented in the academic and scientific community is really powerful. And what I think is really interesting about seeing how things like Filecoin, Arbitrum storage, you know, have developed is there is some of that, but there's also this idea that, whoa, like as the cloud, because the cloud was not a thing when I came out of college, there was no cloud. That was not, no, no one, no concept of the cloud even really existed, right? But as the cloud became this dominant modality of engagement around storage, I think people were like, oh, to your point, like this is something you can combine this sort of, I don't know, like socially oriented, you know, mentality around using this, this extra compute in a way that's, that's socially productive or beneficial, but you can also monetize that is really interesting. So I'm curious how you thought about tokens from the beginning of this, right? And the token economics around the project. And then I want to go back to, to your AI project, but let's just stay with this for a minute on storage and the token model you had there. And your token cell, yeah. I suppose too. Yeah. How you thought about all that? Yeah. So I have a very particular view on tokens that, you know, colors, storage, but also Protean and kind of other projects is there has been, like we you just said, there's SETI at home and folding at home. There's been a lot of these projects out there. And there's been other attempts at distributed storage and distributed compute that go back, you know, a couple decades. But those were always kind of uh, idealistic, you know, contribute, volunteer kind of work. And so you're going to get some people who understand that technology are really excited, but you're not going to be able to scale it beyond a certain point. And once you start to get any kind of network, a distributed network where you want a lot of resources, right? Let's say you want 10,000 people, right? Mm. They're, they're selling compute or storage or whatever. The most difficult part is paying them. You might have 10,000 people in, you know, similar to 10,000 people in, in 80 plus countries. How are you going to pay them? Yeah. That's, that's okay. a, what are you going to send them? Like, send them each a check in the mail? <laughs> Uh, you know, good old fashioned um, postal service, good you know, luck. wire yeah, transfer and ACH, yeah. like, okay, you yeah, know, totally, 80 totally. different uh, currencies. And so, what, carrier pigeon, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So, what tokens really allow is solve that missing piece of incentivization because you can build, you know, a distributed compute or storage network, but without the incentive for those people to run it, you really can't scale it. And until crypto came around, you really couldn't do that in a highly automated, highly transparent and quick fashion without a lot of fees. And so really the, the token, if anything else, really serves as that rails where people can buy distributed compute, distributed storage in a way that's economically feasible that just really didn't exist before. And so that's why you've had the emergence of these the technologies that have been around for years. But they really were missing that incentivization piece to be able to grow into to the size and scale that they're at now. And this is something I think is really missed in a lot of discussion around regulation that's happening right now is the idea that this is fundamentally about an incentive structure and system to encourage and incentivize, to use the word, to overuse the word, to incentivize engagement with the system in a way that, to your point, folding at home and setting at home relied on like the what's in it for me is like, you're helping scientific progress, mankind, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that only appeals to a certain subset of nerds, right. me among them, but you know, to be fair, but, but that's not the most, it's not a proposition that people, that makes a lot of people, you know, jump up and down and get really excited unless they're already convinced of the project's value. Whereas here, you don't necessarily have to even, like there's some people who go in and use 
centralized storage providers because they actively are like, I don't want to use AWS, blah, blah, blah. There are others who are like, hey, I mean, it's easy for me to do. This asset is sitting here. I can deploy it and I can make a little bit of you know, value on the side, right? And that as an incentive, I don't think is something we should sneeze at because I do think if we're going to be more honest about creating more equity in these systems and not allowing, you know, big giant pre-existing legacy corporates to capture the market on these things, whether monopolistically, oligopolistically, it doesn't really matter, right? If we're not going to kind of open that aperture and recognize that the reality is that it's really tough, if not impossible to compete with those existing players, unless you're doing something that to your point is going to deploy 10,000 people or 100,000 people all over the world to take a very minimally, you know, minimally um, an action that doesn't require a lot of engagement from them, right? And is largely passive, but it's going to, they're incentivized to do that. So how do you think about that in the context of AI? Same thing? Like how does it apply in, in Protea? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the thing that, you know, you start out with these technologies that are very idealistic, right? Very technical oriented. And then you, you build them into the systems to say, hey, no, this is a system you can participate in and you can get incentivized for it. But at the end of the day, you have to look at the other side of that. Like what is driving that incentive and what is driving that incentive, what needs to drive that incentive is really the demand. So if you come in and say on the store side, hey, look, we can reduce your AWS cloud bill by 50%. Business go, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh my God, you know, say that one more time, yeah. Yeah, especially, you know, with, uh, inflation and all those other you know things going on in the world. That that, that it's really a very real fixed cost, right? That people yeah. don't really understand. And so on your expense side, I mean, those are significant costs. And as somebody who worked at a social enterprise at five hundred one c three, that's not a huge budget as an organization. That's huge. Like the ability to kind of say, a I can. I first of all, I do think there's an element of I can support this project and this more decentralized system. I do think that matters to an awful lot of people, especially those who are in the technical space, right? I do think that matters, but. Even if it doesn't, the idea that you can just significantly reduce costs and provide something that is as secure, as robust, you know, is, is really powerful because there's no incentive on the part of those existing providers to cut rate, right? It's not, it's not really a thing that they're going to What you're really do. doing is you're just, again, it's just like the difference between Hyatt and Airbnb, right? They have to go invest in a big hotel and build that whole building. But if you have you know, extra bedroom or, you know, extra room, you can rent that out and really monetize that resource and it ends up being a lot cheaper. But it goes to the same thing when you look at just like this explosion of AI right now. And I think a lot of people who are just using these tools, using ChatGPT, don't understand like the huge difference in cost of some of these systems, right? How much do you think it costs for like a Facebook like or to make a post on X? No idea. Fractions like <laughs> small amount of money. Yeah. Right. But if you every time you type a, a query into chat GPT, that's a couple cents. Yeah. Uh, so you multiply that times, you know, hundreds of interactions on millions of users. Yeah. So much money is going out the door. And so using these same systems where a lot of people have mining GPUs or anything selling around, you can say, hey, I'll pay you a good amount of money to use utilize that uh, resource. It ends up being significantly cheaper. The, the, the cloud, and then those same AI companies that are, are really struggling to scale, you know, can save 50 to 90%. You know, it, it, we found yeah. it's the difference between them being economically viable or not. Yeah. So, it, so it's really, yeah. as these tools kind of take over and, you know, you save so much time, those things need processing power and the, the cloud is just, 
it's a great place to start out, but it's just too expensive. And so if you can really utilize these systems uh, mm-hmm. to break down the cost, it's great for the companies. They save a bunch of money and it's great for, for the users as well, because they can make a lot of money just utilizing the, you know, their gaming PC or whatnot that's just sitting there when they're not actively gaming, right? They can make some money back. So. Yeah, totally. Introducing PayUSD, PayPal's US dollar equivalent stablecoin. Designed for digital payments and Web3 transactions, PayUSD is the only stablecoin supported by PayPal. Built on Ethereum, it's compatible with the most widely used wallets, exchanges, and dApps, and fully backed by US dollar deposits and cash equivalents. Eligible US PayPal customers who purchase PayPal USD are able to transfer PayPal USD between PayPal and compatible external wallets. Send PayPal USD to friends in the US on PayPal or Venmo without fees. Shop with PayPal USD on millions of sites, wallets, and dApps. Convert any of PayPal's supported cryptocurrencies to and from PayPal USD. Whether you are a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring now at paypal.com slash PYUSD. So you're a two-time founder and builder in the United States. How are you thinking about the regulatory headwinds in this country and, and versus, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, we're a global, you know, I've been, I've been looking globally at policy for five, six, seven years now. And the U.S. is definitely behind, no question about that. But not just behind, there is a perception on the part of some leadership in the United States government that decentralization, crypto, all of this is just like a flash in the pan. It's just going to go away completely, which I think is factually inaccurate based on what we're seeing everywhere else in the world. Regardless, that is setting a little bit of, you know, I wouldn't say it's setting the tone. I think there are counter voices to that as well, but it certainly is having influence on how this is thought about. So I'm curious, like as somebody who is actively building in this space, who is an American building in America, you're based in Atlanta, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult. I mean, I, I think I've been a little lucky compared to, I mean, again, I've been in the Web3 space for 10 years. So I know yes, a lot of people who are <laughs> on all sides <laughs> yeah. of that, that coin, you know, actively litigating with the regulators versus, you know, people who have spent all their money trying to build a legal framework, right? <laughs> trying to be compliant. And yeah. then the company's gone because, all of it went to lawyer fees and not actually a product. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also like, very real. I, I think it's it's difficult for startups who, you know, try to follow the letter uh, of law, but then there's a lot of not clarity <laughs> on, on what that mm-hmm. actually means. So that just makes it difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. Can I do this? Can I do that? And, we're, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. this regulation by enforcement. So it definitely makes it difficult. I think I've been a little bit more lucky is that the things that I focused on are more... A little bit more traditional businesses like cloud storage or <laughs> the use case is very obvious right yeah so, it's, it's a, like it's yeah. A, oh cloud storage company yeah. so, yep it's very like gpu company doing ai you know yeah and, yeah, and that's, yeah if you look at the forward part of storage or protea or any of my companies you know it looks like that now there's a bunch of cool stuff going on behind the scenes but that's really abstracted but mm-hmm. i think that's a lot more difficult for other founders in this kind of space to to do. But uh, yeah, it's difficult without any kind of real regulatory clarity. Well, and do you think that that's impacting potential products like entering or, or not entering the market? And do you think that 
we're moving towards a world in which Americans are missing out on opportunities because of a lack of clarity. I mean, I personally know builders who are choosing to build outside the US now who wouldn't have done that. That was not their first choice, but they feel like the clarity that's either either exists, even if it's not in ways that they love, right? They're not like the rules there are amazing. And they're like, the rules there are really strict, but at least there are rules. And I know, I know how to not have my company vanish from under me to your point, right? Because I made a misstep and didn't get it. Or because in more accurate, like maybe I pushed a boundary, but then all of a sudden, oops, that was a step too far kind of thing. And I'm just curious, I mean, because you you again, you've like doubled down, right? Like you, you storage was here and now Proteus here. And and so you know, I think I'm I'm just curious in your, because you do know a ton of people in this space, are you also seeing that kind of hesitance to go again in the US or? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, there's definitely people who are, are definitely building outside of the US. I think even the difficulty, you can have someone who is not a US citizen, who is yeah. not stead foot in, in the United States, who, you know, lives abroad, and it's still like, knock, 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 FBI, open up. It's like, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I, I don't live in the U.S., you know, right. but the U.S. is still, you know, enforcing their their jurisdiction. So it's it's very difficult. But, you know, I, I found that, you know, the people who are winning, the people who uh, get the most resources because they can fight that fight. I think at the end of the day, economics are economics. And so if there's a more efficient system, then it's going to grow and it's going to succeed over time. Yes, there will be roadblocks in place, but um, who knows whether you know, the US or somewhere else that embraces any more efficient economic system uh, is probably going to to win out. So we'll see how it okay, is. So here's a question for you in that case, right? So, so okay, that's fair. And, and certainly there's no question that those who can afford to fight at the SEC, for example, are companies that have been around for longer, that have established business models, that have, you know, have the resources to do that. You're not seeing like a brand new innovator company that's been around for a year able to do that. So totally a fair point. And so but the consequence of that, of course, is the rules might be made in the light of those models, right? And so if we if we think about Web3 as an opportunity to create or embed equity or inclusion by design in a system that is decentralized, that is that is meant to be anti-monopolistic, that is meant to have a lot of entrance into it. But the reality, because of the regulatory headwinds, is forcing some bigger actors to take on you know, the fight on behalf of everyone which is interesting because to your point, it's draining a lot of the resources there, right? That they could be spending on perfecting their product or other kinds of things or investing in other in the ecosystem and creating like, you know, other opportunities. But also, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of focused on a certain model and a certain way of engaging in the ecosystem. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. And how do you think about the opportunity to democratize some of these systems? I mean, because fundamentally, right, decentralized file storage is a democratizing function. It is saying we are allowing, we're taking this critical service that lots of businesses and people and other universities, whatever, need, and we're enabling a broad swath of individuals to create value from providing that service collectively across themselves without having to do the coordination, which is really interesting. But we're also saying that you are creating a model where there isn't a dependency on one actor that's extremely powerful and getting more powerful who can set the terms for everybody in the system. Because, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not here to like cast stones, but there, if AWS or something to say, oh, just kidding, all of a sudden, if you're X, Y, and Z kind of, you know, organization, you can't use our, there's not options, right? So how do you- I think that the more, more relevant example is Unity uh, saying, oh, we're just going to change our pricing structure now. Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> that's a better example. That's a better example, right? 
so how do you how do you think about this? How do you think about equity in general? Or is you or is this something that is in your mind when you're building these things? Or are you more just like, like I, I'm just curious to get your your take on these kinds of questions? I mean, I just think of it in terms of it goes back to old kind of startup tactics and mantras is there there is value in scaling uh, and having use and having customers, right? <laughs> yep. uh, you know, you you can spend a lot of time thinking about and noodling on these philosophical questions, you know, in terms of democratization, right? And other you things. can build useful stuff. <laughs> or, or you can just build useful stuff and say, look, useful stuff. Yep. you know, yeah. uh, you know, for us, you know, we've had Proteo, we've generated over a hundred million AI generated images on our platform. And we serve many of the many popular image generation tools out there. So we can say, here, here's our customers. Here's a mm-hmm. you know, hundred thousand users who mm-hmm. use us every month. You know, that is a proof point that will kind of help against some of the pushing you into the negative bucket versus, you know, mm. projects that's yeah. just really focusing, oh, we're going to change the world and here's a very abstract white paper. And like, I think the the counter to that is really just focusing on real problems, real mm. solutions, growing, scaling, getting the revenue, right? And then you can obviously, if you need to fight that fight, you're coming in from yeah. a good place. You have real traction and revenue than than a hypothetical. So I, I think it's it's a sword that really can cut both ways, right? It can hurt projects that might make some, you know, big uh, impact on the world. But the other side of things, you know, it's going to also quash, you know, someone who's going to uh, maybe not do things in a kosher way. But I think the, the core thing is just for people building this space, right? Build things that are useful that people use. And, and uh, that will be a better solution than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, there's all this obsession, you know, in VC land around PMF, product market fit, product market fit. And it's like, well, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Because if you're solving the problem, your PMF is just going to kind of going to be there, right? Like, it's like, there it is. because It's a real problem. People feel that it's a real problem. It's not an imaginary one you made up. It's a real problem. People feel that problem. You have a solution to that problem that is not overly challenging to deploy, right? To the points about Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin solved the real problem, but it was just way too hard to use in the early days. So it didn't get that rapid adoption. But, you know, the things you're talking about in building, I think the engagement, the form factors is relatively straightforward. You know, it's it's familiar enough to people that it doesn't require this like gigantic leap of faith to try to engage with it. And it's solving real problems. So it's a very fair criticism, I think, leveled at the crypto ecosystem and the industry that, you know, there was a lot of this dancing around the theory a lot and the philosophy around this, right? And, and I do think some of that ethos persists, which isn't necessarily problematic, except to your point, well, maybe this is to your point, when it kind of it holds back or pulls the reins on actual useful product being built and encouragement of adoption and kind of making the adjustments necessary for adoption to happen, right. which again, like the issue around early Bitcoin. Very, very interesting. There's a lot of sense that like, oh, all tech innovation happens in SF and New York, <laughs> you know, uh, but there's a hotbed of folks in Atlanta really building. And so I'd love to hear just about the community in Atlanta and, and you know, how how you feel like uh, other cities, particularly Atlanta, are kind of proving to also have their tech boom that's happening right now. Any thoughts on that? Oh, we recently came back from a trip to San Francisco. Uh, ah. <laughs> Say no more. Friend, um, the CEO of uh, OpenAI and, and ChatGPT, he came to Atlanta and we're just kind of talking to him about funding and whatnot. He's like, go to SF. We did. <laughs> so I, I, there, there's definitely, you know, a couple of companies, you know, building here, but yeah, yeah, the, there's definitely a much bigger, yeah. much tighter scene in, in uh, San Francisco and, and these tech hubs. So 
As much as I'm a little sad to hear that, because I'd love to see that be a little more, you know, uh, spread. I will also say as someone who lives in San Francisco, the idea that San Francisco and the tech scene there is dead is like hilarious. That is quite the opposite. <laughs> it was a little, you know, it, it contracted a little bit during Maybe slightly. Exactly. All the engineers were working out of like remotely in Hawaii, but now yeah. they're back. So. <laughs> I mean, they're back. Yeah, they're back. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I think like wildfire smoke alone from various places, you know, including <laughs> Hawaii has led people to come right back. So fire, flood, earthquake. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And there's also something I will say, you know, in defense of, of my of my fair city, you know, there is something about that history uh, of the sort of the city that does lend itself to a certain kind of personality and a certain kind of of innovator, and that goes back to like the founding of the city. So something to be said for like cities have their, I'm in Washington DC right now at the moment is recording and it's a very different feel. It's a very different city. And there is a gravity to the city that is extremely different than the gravity you have in San Francisco or New York or in Atlanta or Chicago or in LA, you know, it's really different. And, and there's a reason that some of these cities have become known for known as hubs of certain kinds of things. But all that being said, it is it's really interesting to hear about kind of how your journey took you from decentralized file storage, right? A, a certain kind of problem into AI working on decentralized backend, which is really the next kind of evolution. And if you had to predict, you know, your next project, you know, like, what do you think? What do you, what do you the direction of all this is heading? Because there's a convergence, right? I think the, the broader point is a convergence of AI and of blockchain backed systems or permissionless networks. And I think the blockchain part of it's very invisible as I think it should be. And I think you, know, you probably agree with that, but feel free to comment. What do you think that next thing is? Is this like augmented reality? I mean, what do you think is the next layer, if you will, of all this and the direction that it goes once we've kind of landed some of these core concepts? No, it's going so fast. It's it's hard to, um, you know, no. I mean, ChatGPT might become sentient and take over the world. And then <laughs> we don't have to worry about <laughs> these silly problems. You know, we'll just be batteries, you know, accelerating. And I, I see this, this really inner interesting intersection of, you know, AI and Web3. Like we're seeing a lot of use cases on like AI generated NFTs, which are just the start. But really, I think there's some really powerful things on the infrastructure. You've seen, I mean, look at it this way. Bitcoin and mining is basically the largest supercomputer in the world by orders and orders of magnitude over anything else, right? And so if you start to ha- harness as a fraction of that power, towards building things like AI, it's it's going to be an interesting future that I think our human minds can't can't really predict. And so that's where I'm really focusing a lot of my time on on the infrastructure side, because we're just seeing just the the smallest tidbits of, of this technology being really impactful on our lives. So just pushing the gas and the accelerator, I think, is the way to go. And we'll see. We'll see where it kind of leads us. Well, grateful for you, Sean, and thanks so much for joining us today on Money Reimagine. That was my guest, Sean Wilkinson, the founder of Storage and of Protea. That's all. That's a wrap for today. But join us next week. Come back again for another episode of Money Reimagined.